Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to another members-only Beast Inside episode of The Daily Beast, The New Abnormal. And we thank you so much for being here. Today we're delighted to have an extra special guest with Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker. Jelani has written so many great articles, but today we want to talk to him particularly about his latest on the Republican Party and how it could cease to exist, as well as what the upcoming voter rights bill means for people. Welcome, Jelani. Thank you. I'm so happy to have you. I'm a huge fan, and I always, I feel like you write what I would write if I were smarter and a better writer, and also had a real history background, which you can tell. You have an amazing piece in The New Yorker this week. Can we talk a little bit about it? Sure. What gave you this idea to write this piece? So, you know, we were having a conversation about where coverage needed to go, and this was last year. I should say we, it was a New Yorker editorial re- Uh, meeting. And I was thinking about this saying, like, we can't predict the future, you know, of American politics, but we have enough of a track record to look backward and see if there are overlapping dynamics or similar dynamics. And, you know, I thought about it and and just popped into my head and I said, is the Republican Party the modern version of the Whigs? Um, And, you know, one of the things that most people don't know is that, you know, we talk about the two-party system in the United States, and obviously that's not prescribed by the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say anything about a two-party system. And as a matter of fact, the founders were opposed to political parties. They thought that uh, parties would bring about the destruction of democracy immediately. Uh, And so I thought about, like, we should talk about this. And even if the Republican Party is not going to collapse the way the Whigs did or the Federalists did, you know, our two-party system has fallen apart twice before, you know, in 1812 uh, and then around 1812 and then in 1854. Uh, Even if that's not what's going to happen, it's worth thinking about the extent to which the dynamics that have brought about the demise of major political parties are present in our current day politics. And so that's kind of how it got started. And it was one of those interesting moments because, uh, you know, in the editorial meeting, you're supposed to come with your ideas and, you know, articulate them. There's this kind of round robin. And I came in that day and I had nothing. (laughs) (laughs) As we were sitting there, I was like, I hope something pops into my head before they get to me. And so I I will tell you something really funny, which is like the first of those meetings I ever went to. I was seated, seated to David Remnick's right. And I just happened to sit there and he came in and sat in the seat next to me. So when they started, he was like, "Uh, who'd like to go first? How about you, Jelani? And I just said, seriously? Seriously? (laughs) He was like, okay, well, then we'll start to my left. (laughs) You started as an academic. Yeah, I mean, I'm still an academic in some ways. I have this kind of split vision um, of the world which has persisted since undergrad. You know, I really was interested in journalism. And I also was interested 
in journalism and other forms of writing. And, um, and I also was interested in history and, and I didn't know if I wanted to be an academic historian or a journalist. And I thought those two things were mutually exclusive. And so I've been very fortunate in the fact that I've been able to do both of those things in my career. I'm married to a lapsed academic. <laughs> I spend a lot of time thinking about all of the smart academics I know. And I actually feel like with your writing, you have this historical knowledge that's amazing. Thank you. You are able to use it in a way that that's really, I think, should be the goal of all of us. But So I'm curious to know, personally, I mean, do you think this could happen? Here's the kind of summary of it. The first political party to fall apart were the Federalists. Right. And they died uh, largely because... They were really sequestered in the northeastern, northeastern United States. And as the country expanded westward, they weren't able to appeal to broader demographics. And, you know, they also opposed the War of 1812, which turned out to be you know, really popular. And the second, uh, you know, other parties came and went. We essentially had one party rule uh, from 1812 until almost 1828 or so. Uh, and, you know, that was the Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party. Uh, that party broke apart because of some you know, particulars in the 1824 election. And uh, then we got one short-lived version, the National Republicans, that faded out quickly. And the other version of it was the Democrats, which is the party that we have now. Uh, and then in 1854, the Whigs, who were, you know, the, the second party, you know, the Democrats were, you know, one and the Whigs were the other major party. Uh, they broke apart over debates about the expansion of slavery and they could not figure out where they stood on these fundamental questions. They were incoherent uh, internally. And so what was notable to me was the extent to which all those dynamics are present within the current Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, that there have been, even, you know, when you looked at the the platform for the 2020 election, they, based, they didn't create one. Right. <laughs> you know, Trump was the platform. They yeah. recycled the one from 2016, but uh, that's like, you know, turning in a paper that you wrote for a previous class. <laughs> like, you're not going to bother to do anything um, that relates to the developments of the past four years. Donald Trump is our agenda, which meant all the things that the Republicans traditionally stood for, said they stood for. Like, I, I'm old enough to remember when they believed in free trade uh, and all of a sudden we're having tariff fights. Uh, or old enough to believe, I mean, just lots of things. We could walk through lots of things that, that did not, uh, adhere that they did not adhere to in the Trump era. Beyond that, they've doubled and tripled down on a type of politics that is very appealing to disgruntled white people or kind of white identity politics, but not very appealing to other groups of people. And the political problem here is that the people you are appealing to most significantly are a shrinking part of the electorate. Same thing that happened with the Federalists. And so, you know, white people in 1996 were at 85% of the electorate. In the last election, they were about 62% and falling. And so we see that the, the growth uh, communities are communities of color and communities even, you know, outside the South, uh, you know, where the GOP is 
heavily uh, you know, centered. And so you're looking around going, what's the strategy? What's the growth strategy here? The, the one thing that the Republicans have in their favor is the fact that there are all these minoritarian dynamics in American politics. And Jamel Bowie uh, from the New York Times. I was hoping we could talk about that. Yeah, go on. Sorry to interrupt you. Oh, yeah. Jamel Bowie wrote a piece uh, disagreeing with me, and I immediately went to his house and began assaulting him. Um, and after, after the end of the fight, uh, I conceded that he made some good points. Um, but, you know, he did point out, you know, some of these things, too, the kind of minoritarian elements in American politics that allow the GOP to wield power, even as a fun, effectively a minority party. And the last thing I'll say about this, one last thing, is that one other aspect that we don't talk about much is the Republican Party in the 20th century. Like most of us don't know that the Republicans were a congressional minority from 1932 to 1972, with the exception of two years. They remained a minority in Congress for four decades. And that is a kind of possibility, even if the party didn't break apart, they could very well be creating, recreating uh, the kind of status that they had in the middle third of the 20th century. I would not hate that. <laughs> I think a lot of people say that. But here's the problem like, before we kind of embrace that. Yeah. The problem is that we are looking at an emerging politic of white anxiety and desperation. Yeah. And... If you have people, as was indicated by this poll, you know, significant numbers of Republicans who felt that violence might be necessary to, quote unquote, defend the American way of life. If you have a really disgruntled minority that feels and an, and an entitled one that feels that it can no longer exert its will through popular politics, uh, well, that's an incentive for them to turn to violence. And so we've been thinking about January 6th as a culmination of all of Trump's lies, all of his divisiveness, uh, all of his belligerence, uh, all of his uh, demagoguery, and all of it kind of the pinnacle of all that happened on January 6th. But it might be reasonable to look at January 6th as the onset of a particular kind of political violence rather than the culmination of something that's already concluded. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like there's, it feels like there's a possibility for a sort of Northern Ireland, slow-rolling right. civil war. Low-grade fever, right, exactly, of conflict. Yeah, no, I think that's right. We've talked about the FBI in relation to my grandfather a little bit. and mm -hmm. Who, by the way, your, your grandfather's memoir, Being Read, is literally on my shelf in front of me right now. Oh. If we, if this were a video, uh, we were like video, having a video conversation, I could pull it off the shelf and show you. Oh, I, I wish there were more about Paul. I, I did some reading about Paul Robeson and mm -hmm. the uh, Peekskill riot. Mm -hmm. And I, I wish there were more. His communism was used to kind of erase him. Oh, yeah. You know, um, Amir Baraka, I'm going to butcher this line, but Amir Baraka had this this great line where he said that people have been dissed, like people have been dissed by the government and the worst kind of diss is making you disappear. You know, Robeson went from being this astoundingly well-known, astoundingly popular person to being a non-entity. They removed him from public life, uh, refused to let him travel abroad, denied him a passport and essentially made him a domestic prisoner and a pariah in his own country. 
and you know for raising questions that you know, should have been obvious you know all yeah. along uh, and so yeah, i mean i think that the kind of generational connection that people had in very many instances on the left with stalin obviously that's not not something that people in the kind of with a sense of humanity or humanitarian concerns no one's going to hold up stalin uh, as an exemplar but i think we have conveniently absolved ourselves of the history that would make people look to the east for um a humanitarian model in the first place yeah. like, what what were people looking to get past like we almost proceed as if a genocide didn't start this country like we didn't the kickoff you know of the country was like uh first we get rid of all the native americans and so yeah I, and i think that that's like part of a conversation that we really don't have very much yeah no i mean that whole it feels like that whole hit that whole time period is just not talked about so much and i feel like some of it is because there it's it's so complicated mm-hmm. well i think it's kind of like being able to hold two things in tension because and, and this is something that frustrates me you know in my conversations with people on the left which is that uh we seem to be either willing to grapple with the catastrophic immorality of the west and the capitalist system uh for what it did to enslaved africans what it did to indigenous people what it did to generations and generations of labor you know what it did to the environment etc all those things we're kind of very clear about them or we can grapple with the catastrophic immorality of the soviet system um and what it did in the gulag you know what it did well, i mean the entirety yeah. of it you know all the things uh, all the collect agricultural collectivism in china and the, the millions of people who died uh you know stalin's collectivism and the 2 or 3 million georgians who died etc uh and i have steadfastly said why do we have to choose between two immoral <laughs> systems as human beings right, it's true <laughs> right like why does it have to be one or the other obviously i'm not interested in absolving any system that produced slavery but i don't want to defend one that produced the gulag either <laughs> <laughs> life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or I prefer Don't you? 
That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. So now Democrats have the Senate, the House, and the presidency, and there there are two voting rights bills, HR one and HR four, which is the John Lewis Act, that are that just uh, are about to pass the House and hopefully go to the Senate. Do you see a world where Democrats are able to shore up voting rights? <laughs> yes. <laughs> question mark (laughs) it's it's like yes ish right the reason being if i can kind of do just a kind of quick historical tour and i I wrote about this in the new yorker you know if we look at the purpose of black voting the reason that black people were enfranchised after the end of the civil war and eric foner talks about this in one of his more recent books it might be his most recent book the second founding uh, which is about specifically the the passage and ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and how that kind of recreated American democracy. And around the 15th Amendment, there was all of this wrangling about whether or not, you know, the 15th Amendment gave Black men the right to vote. There's all this wrangling about whether or not it should happen. Part of it was partisan politics you know, Republicans pushed in Ohio for enfranchising Black voters only to see white voters bolt uh, and support Democrats. You know, and this is in Ohio. Uh, but at the same time, Lincoln, before his assassination, recognized that some sort of Black suffrage was a necessity. Uh, the reason being that, with a reasonable presumption, that if you gave Black people the right to vote, overwhelmingly those populations were in the South, and that they would not vote for the same party as the former slaveholders voted for, uh, which would have been the Democrats at that time. Uh, and uh, they would create a offset to the South's political power. You know, one of the, the primary concerns of national politics, of Repo- national Republican politics at that point, was to prevent the South from gaining enough political power 
to rip the country in half again, as it had done between 1861 and 1865. So the idea is that, well, if we create this whole class of Republican voters in the South, there'll be a natural offset. So to summarize it, essentially, Black people got the right to vote as a means of forestalling a white supremacist movement that was a direct threat to American democracy. Fast forward, 2020. Uh, Over the course of that week, we were watching these returns come in from Georgia, and particularly from Fulton County, which is where Atlanta, most of Atlanta sits in Fulton County. And that is one of the Black population centers in the state. I looked and said, 150 years later, this is the 150th anniversary of the the, uh, 15th Amendment. 150 years later, Black voters in Georgia are being called upon to do the exact same thing that they were called upon to do in 1870, which is use their votes to counter a white supremacist movement that was a threat to the well-being of American democracy. And so those are the dynamics that are at stake. uh, And those are the things, I should say, that are at stake. And the way that Black voting, it started, you know, in Reconstruction, but then ended because people were physically intimidated. People used all sorts of mechanisms to uh, prevent access to the ballot and uh, Black access to the ballot. All the rights and freedoms enshrined in those amendments were chipped away at uh, through kind of judicial homicide, a a tide of judicial uh, rulings and decisions that gutted the 14th Amendment uh, and effectively the 15th Amendment. These bills are very important. But what happens with this judiciary, which has been shaped by all of these appointments that Donald Trump made, uh, the Supreme Court, which is as heavily conservative as it has ever been, and will these protections for voting rights be able to stand in that system? And so one of the things that people don't want to talk about, but the future of our democracy depends upon equal access to the ballot. And in order to make that happen, they may have to expand the judiciary. They may even need to expand the Supreme Court, uh, which would be the most contentious you know, aspect of this. And the last thing that I'll say is that I've talked about this in terms of African-Americans, but over the growth from 1965 forward, uh, from the point where we get the Voting Rights Act, that act has grown to protect the voting rights of lots of different groups of people including uh, immigrant voters. You know, one of the things that the uh, Voting Rights Act stipulates is that if your population is above a certain kind of trigger percentage, you have to have ballot materials in the language that that population speaks. And so, right, if you're in a heavily Spanish-speaking community, you have to have Spanish ballots. If you are in a community that where there's a significant Haitian Creole-speaking population, you have to have ballot materials in that language. And so it protects the rights of of immigrant voters and voter access. It has been key to the rights of Native American voters. Uh, And so a lot more is at stake than we generally acknowledge in thinking about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science, will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.